Hello. Hello. And welcome to Unpleasant Movies. The podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Svada Ogur. And I'm Thomas Simonsen Banbra. And today we are discussing a pretty vital movie <laughs> within Unpleasant Cinema. Yeah, it's kind of an unpleasant classic. <laughs> if you will. A lot more people have heard of it than have seen it. Yeah, I think so. Amongst others, me. So what movie are we discussing today? Today we're talking about Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom, by Pier Paolo Pasolini. The one and only. <laughs> and it's partially based on Marquis de Sade's book, yeah, 120 Days. Loosely based. Days. Yeah. Well, it uses excerpts from his book. And a sort of uh, framework. Well, the framework is also partially based on Dante's Inferno. It has four sections, yeah. each which is like a segment of the circle of hell. Mm. He uses title screens um, and then goes into like these various parts. Yeah, it has a sort of a impressive intellectual pedigree yeah. uh, of works referred to in this movie, considering the sort of um, god-awful content of the movie. It's sort of a juxtaposition between the, the philosophical and, and intellectual framework and the shit-eating <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. Just shortly about the plots. It's not a very plot-heavy film. It has these um, four uh, central characters. It's the Duke, the Bishop, the Magistrate, and the President. Yeah, they're sort of libertines during the late Second World War era. It's 1944, it's set, in the town of Salo. Yeah, uh, Mussolini was was, uh, captured and uh, he was uh, handed to the Allied forces... I believe, and uh, then he was rescued by uh, Adolf Hitler with a sort of, he sent an elite group of uh, soldiers to capture him, and he was reinstated as the head of the new sort of um, the Republic of Salo, or the new Italian government, which consisted of northern and central Italy, because the Allied forces had control over southern Italy and Sicily. And it's, it takes place in, during that fascist regime, which was basically a German puppet state. Yeah, Pasolini kind of sets the stage there with these four characters marrying each other's daughters and abducting 18 teenagers, which they uh, carry to this big mansion and carry out a series of humiliating and abusive rituals, more or less. Yeah, sort of rituals uh, slash experiments. Yeah. In uh, sadism, which Games, the yeah. word you know derives from Marquis de Sade, and yeah. sexual deprivation, basically. There's a lot of it. Yeah, deprivation in all all sorts of forms. So, I mean, it, it's a beautifully shot movie. It's the cinematography by Tonioni Deli Colli. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but anyway. <laughs> and it's music by Ennio Morricone, yeah. uh, which is lovely. And it also uses a bit of uh, Camina Burana and some other stuff. The locations are very beautiful. It beautiful, starts like just yeah, showing this, uh, this Italian palazzo, beautiful interiors, very sumptuous and gorgeous. And it starts off showing some of the Italian landscapes, very classy, very art house. Yeah. The music is, during the intro sequence, is uh, really upbeat. Yeah. It doesn't really prepare you for mm. what's ahead. Yeah, because it has... This classical uh, pre-movie credit stuff, which just shows the um, names and stuff, yeah. uh, like the old films used to do. Now, really thematical, beautiful elements contrasts with the gruesome acts depicted. So there's a juxtaposition there. Yeah, the deeply, deeply uh, repugnant acts perpetrated in this movie by this yeah. cadre of these four, uh, basically psychopaths. Yeah. 
And uh, that's the whole movie. It sort of just ends in this escalation of orgiastic uh, depravity and violence yeah. and sadism. It kind of gradually increases and they, and they have their little seances. Yeah. Um, as I said, it has chapters based on the um, titles of Dante. The Divine Comedy. Yeah, it's Divine Comedy. Yeah. It's d- uh, divided into the Anti-Inferno, the Circle of Menace, the Circle of Excrement, and the Circle of Blood. Yeah. Uh, well, there's several of these scenes are introduced by excerpts of Makidisar's book read aloud, or personal stories read aloud by these, these uh, hosts, these prostitutes. Brothel madams. Yeah. Veterans of the sex industry. Yeah. Along with the abductees, there's these prostitutes and uh, soldiers working for the... Um, well, there's several projects. groupings. There are guards, there are like these uh, hung people who are meant to like fuck people, and mm. there's uh, these basically whores or um, being used as uh, sex toys and playthings for these uh, libertines. And then you have the ruling elite and the the madams. Mm. And there's servants too, which play a part later in the movie. It's a film about fascism and sadism and consumerism and a critique of terrible nature of man with the, the grasp of limitless power. What can you do? What would you do? And also um, sort of the, well, how I saw it anyway, the ability of man to sort of justify anything with enough learning, you can justify anything. But <laughs> as we see uh, during the movie, it's sort of, even though you can use the correct citations and philosophers yeah. and poets to say... Because yeah, they're quoting Nietzsche and all yeah. that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's still horrific, you know. And, and, and I think that applies mm. to large parts of fascism mm, and absolutely. Nazism and right-wing authoritarianism that often either uses intellectual giants like, for instance, Nietzsche, which has a lot of meat for right-wing authoritarianism. Which is ironic as he absolutely hated that stuff. Well, he hated that stuff, but at the same time, he was also used heavily by uh, by Hitler and, and uh, yeah. Nazism and, yeah. and fascism. But you know, he he um, broke off his friendship with Richard Wagner because he was kind not of those Semites. tendencies. Yeah, yeah. So I know. he was violently against that stuff, but his theories are quite often used. Well, you could say like he was against that, but at the same time, he had very problematic relationships uh, with towards women in general, and he was. Uh, well, the way I've read his works, anyway, he seems to glorify personal growth over empathy towards other people. Like, mm-hmm. some people are inherently better than others, not because you're a Jew or anything, but because you have this yeah, it's sort a personality, of this innate personality, mm-hmm. yeah. this will to power, and uh, yeah, the slave moral and the um... yeah, exactly. It's part of uh, also what I think uh, Dostoevsky uh, goes into in. Crime and Punishment, among uh, mm. other of his works, where um, Raskolnikov is sort of uh, obsessed with Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> he thinks, uh, <laughs> like, great men can do anything. And mm. I think that's... You can read, and I think uh, Nietzsche also, in part, felt great men are raised above others. Yeah. And I think that's part of what appeals to right-wing authoritarianists that don't necessarily read deeper into Nietzsche. Yeah, they pick up the surface stuff of the Ubermensch, yeah. and they can Consider exactly. themselves like genetically or intellectually superior, and 
therefore they can yeah. do whatever they like to other people. And you modify it and you take what you want. Mm. Just like uh, how Nazism used uh, religion. It wasn't a inherently religious movement, but they use, you know, you Symbols. take the bits and pieces mm. that uh, works for you. Which is, I think, how the cadre of four and this movie also uses mm. uh, different beats of pieces of poetry and, and, and philosophy to justify and sort of explore their depraved and twisted uh, inclinations. What it does is it shows how they're used rather than, I mean, it certainly doesn't try to justify the usage of it. No, no, But no. it kind of contextualizes how, like, uh, theories and intellectual bases can be applied or how they interact with it. Now, this is by many considered one of the most gruesome films. And there's a lot of, like, uh, classic film directors like Harnacker and Gaspar Noah cited as them. Some of their favorite movies. <laughs> Though I have to say, by today's standards, I would guess that a lot of people have seen things depicted much more grotesquely than you would in this movie. Like you have uh, cutting off tongues or, or slicing eyes, and uh, the torture porn genre, genre yeah. is often cited as inspired by it this movie and i think a lot of people wouldn't find it as shocking as they might expect the horrible things about this film isn't so much the grotesque elements no it's um, not the gore it's the psychological sort of uh, game they're playing with these uh, yeah. innocent uh, people and it's a movie that's not so interested in appealing to your excitement of the uh, nasty in many ways it's kind of low-key and i think a lot of people might experience it as boring actually because it doesn't do much to try and engage you directly. It has kind of a slow pace and it doesn't excitedly depict the uh, grotesque and nasty things that happen. Well, it sort of uh, implicitly does not try to appeal to your sort mm. of sense of excitement or drama. Mm. It is inherently tedious and I do think that's part of the intent. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, watching it, it is tedious and it is, you know, scene after scene of just horrible, appalling shit. But at the same time, it's not framed in a way to make you care too much apart from just, uh, God, that's just horrible. In many ways, it's quite a cold movie. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, super cold. And in that sense, you can absolutely understand why Hanukkah finds it interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, and the connection to fascism, too. Mm. Uh, you know, he, Pasolini was connected to fascism in his youth. And uh, also among the many artists who are cited in this work, you know, Ezra Pound was famously enamored by fascism and Nazism oh, really? to the point of uh, being uh, brought to trial for treason oh, wow. among very few poets in um, America. So I find it interesting that they use parts of his cantos yeah. in this movie. And I think, uh, Did you know whether or not the situation with Ezra Pound happened before or after the movie, or was that, uh, was it in light of his? Uh... It was. Uh, it was during World War Two, and in the direct aftermath of it, the whole Ezra Pound trial thing predated it by some years, I think. But it's sort of almost uh, during the same time period, like post World War Two. Yeah, because Salo's from nineteen seventy five. Yeah, so Esther Pound and, and that old drama was uh, before that, and I think uh, Pasolini actually met Ezra Pound too. Oh yeah, at some point. So there's a connection mm. on a personal level, even if he personally was incredibly enamored by fascism. He's still, uh, you know, wildly hailed as one of the great modernist poets. And, and also Marquita Sad, I've never actually read anything of him. I haven't really... Well, like, quotes maybe, excerpts, but not yeah, sit down and read a book. Same. 
Mostly because I just haven't been that interested in no. just reading. Because I know it's, it delves into a lot of the same things that this movie does. A lot of just uh, sadism and... Yeah, the term comes from yeah. Makita's art, sadism. And so, and so I, I got I to say I was a bit apprehensive before yeah. knowing we were going to talk about this movie. Because it's not the kind of movie that generally appeals to me. It's sort of torture porn, uh, long drawn out sequences. I know we, we talked about it with um, Sombre, which I found pretty tedious and i must say i found this movie pretty tedious at times too but not to the same point and i think in large part because even though this movie is cold it's still pretty like creative and mm. uh in some ways it managed to uh, retain your attention but it's very unpleasant i gotta say it's just super super abrasive well the things that i find most unpleasant about it has to do with the people the intensity of these um form yeah they are sort of so, the central powers in this yeah. movie, and they're so unpleasant. Yeah, they have like the contorted faces. Oh, God, and, like, the, the, the president? He looks like Joseph Goebbels, <laughs> cross-eyed Goebbels. And like the first scene when he's like begging to be sodomized uh, yeah. and that yeah, yeah, yeah. just And his face is yeah. so fucking... Like that face Yeah, he looks like a, um, like, a, like a puppet. He doesn't look human at all. Yeah, he, he, there's something really goofy about his... <laughs> yeah, it's goofy. Goofy and weird and just... Like, but but, it, but it's, it's the same sort of banal evil that was so apparent uh, in hindsight uh, with a lot of top-ranking Nazi mm. officials. Like Goebbels and like all these just buffoons. And I think the movie really shows you in a, like, it's super extreme and the characters are obviously super exaggerated and also based on the mm. the novel and all, all that stuff. But still, it does feel sort of like a genuine exploration into true sadism and psychopathy and the sort of banality of it all. Mm. Like, they're just... It's just joking. They're yeah. just laughing. They're, they're enjoying themselves. Yeah, truly very enjoying much. themselves. Um, and to some degree, they also allow the violence on their own bodies. They have this, oh, yeah. uh, for example, uh, as you mentioned earlier, they have um, uh, the shit eating where they force one of the uh, abductees to eat shit, but then they very God, joyously... That, that, the quarter of the movie is yeah. just... It's typically the place where people turn off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they also have the scene so, where he... Uh, he can't remember which one of it was, but he also very gleefully ate shit. Uh, oh, yeah, they, they very took part in it. But of course, oh. they're not sort of uh, exposed to the element of danger that yeah. everyone else is. Yeah. They can partake whenever they want yeah. and they can choose not to. And what they seem to find mm. true pleasure in is sort of uh, forcing yeah. these extremely antisocial and violent situations upon innocence. The more innocent, the better. Yeah, you have a really nice example of this. Uh, they kind of stage a wedding between two of the young uh, boys and girls. During like the ceremony, I think it's the president, he goes around and starts to grope all the people around. He gropes the soldiers. No, it's, it's the duke, I think. It's the duke, yeah. yeah. Well, he goes around groping everybody as kind of like a perverse way of showing his power. The idea of like a sanctimonious ritual and then they're just this guy being allowed to doing whatever he wants with their bodies. It's uh, Yeah, you, you sort of make profane a sort of sacred yeah. uh, sacred ritual. And it's all about power yeah. and sort of debasing mm. what's good and true about humanity. Mm. They create all these sort of uh, ritualistic uh, seances mm. where they sort of mimic something wholesome and good mm. and then debase it yeah. by and, doing something. And very banal. Very, yeah, very banal. Uh, kind of childish almost, like a childish impulse. I just want to ruin that thing. Yeah, it's sort of uh, the bully mentality. I just want to trample on the yeah. thing because it's good and just laugh. Yeah, and roll around in the muck and smile and yeah. laugh. 
they're so ugly, these guys. It's yeah, so horrible so to look ugly. at them. They're shouting faces. It's just super unesthetic, which is, it's interesting in such a sort of well-shot movie. Mm. These ugly faces. I guess you wouldn't think of them as ugly, maybe in a different context if they were portraying good people. But their soul is so ugly that their faces just sort of, you read all the more ugliness into them. Yeah. It's fascinatingly just unpleasant, this movie. But I got to say, at the same time, like during a lot of points, I just, it failed to engage me on any sort of intellectual level. I can see the value of discussing it, but watching it, it didn't give me much. It just gave me just a bad feeling. And not because I'm so sensitive to violence and horrible things that I can't watch it. It's more that it's just the lengthiness of it and the repeated action of the sort of depraved situations, which they refer to in the movie, like killing somebody, yeah, that's that's good, but killing somebody again and again and again forever, that would be so much better. Mm. I don't remember who said it, maybe the Duke or maybe the president. Yeah, killing is best, but no, actually sodomy is best because you can do it again and again and again. So the the more times you can repeat a depraved act, the better. It's a kind um, of a funny line. <laughs> yeah. And also, I don't know, the movie does feel very dated. The audio is kind of terrible and the, yeah. the, like the voiceovers are just... Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what they used to do then is that they dubbed all the voices afterwards. And uh, yeah, you like, can see it. It's, it's Fellini, very, for instance... Yeah. Typical of the movies of the era, but it does feel very dated and yeah. and sort of, I don't know, it, it takes away some of the gravitas of the movie, I guess. And also makes it, well, it's not a pleasant watch, but it's it's just sort of makes it feel a little more rinky-dink, I guess. Uh, but I mean, it's interesting, this element of tediousness, because it's absolutely there and absolutely intentional. And it works against the filmatic language. You get kind of adopted into in the western cinema where the american tradition is so intent on keeping you engaged and excited at all times and having character payoffs to me i found some of that to be an acquired taste i don't mind a film being tedious necessarily if it feels functional yeah and it certainly does here i mean it makes you uneasy works against your wishes and intentions while watching the film. It makes it bothersome in a way. A lot of people find it difficult to engage with, I, I expect. Um, yeah, I found it bothersome. Like any good art, it does. It gives you a, a reaction, <laughs> whether yeah. good or bad. Well, uh, And in this case, was it bad, I would assume. Mm. But at the same time, like I... I don't like this movie. Yeah. I don't like this movie. Well, I, like I Essentially, I think you're not really supposed to. I mean, you're supposed to be ambivalent about it. Yeah, but still, like, let's say you write a book because you want to write a boring book. And then, then you read it and, wow, it's a boring book. Oh, yes, but I intended it to be a boring book. And it's like, you know, you, you made your point, but at the same time, sure. it's like... But then it's a question of craft and a question of hmm. how interesting is the concept in and of itself, I think. Yeah, that's the thing, though. I, it feels like it wants to be more than it is or it wants to be more effective than it is or it wants to raise more questions than it does because I didn't really sit... like I. To me, it was just a pretty authentic experience of witnessing psychopathy and sadism. 
but I didn't draw any conclusions from it. Yeah, well, it's very nihilistic in a sense, oh, yeah. and very banal. It doesn't really delve into these things. In kind of a way, expects you to do the legwork. Yeah, it does. And uh, I don't know, like on some level, that feels that feels a bit lazy. It feels a bit lazy. Like it's not a lazy movie by any stretch of the mm. imagination, mm. but I think the sort of uh, expected. It's, it's hard to explain, but like I, I feel like Pasolini's intent is for you to do so much work on your own if you want to get anything from the experience mm. other than just being appalled. Mm. And I think probably if you found it interesting to make a movie that made people feel sick too, like a very basic level. Well, it's interesting because this was his last movie. Oh, yes, and it was he before was he was murdered. Yeah, he was actually murdered before the film came out a short while before. So he wasn't murdered because of the movie, which might have been an interesting story. Well, I read um, that uh, the movie may have played a part. Like he was blackmailed because somebody stole some footage from this movie, uh, uh, something like that. Well, I mean, there's there's a few stories. I'm not sure what's It's an unexplained case. Yeah. Unsolved. He, he, was a, he was a homosexual and he, he had lots of diverse uh, illicit affairs. And it was an encounter with a person and some blackmail type situation. Though whether it was about... The film or his sexuality, it's, it's unclear. It's, um, yeah. He was definitely murdered. I got to say, um, you know, read, reading about his mm. biography and, uh, and reading the stuff about like his pedophile <laughs> actions and stuff, it sort of it, it doesn't enamor me to him intellectually, you know, mm. but it, it sort of makes it very obvious in a sense why he's the perfect director for this movie, <laughs> I guess. Well... Because before he'd made this film, this was supposed to be the start of a trilogy called the Trilogy of Nihilism, I think. Yep. And before he'd made three other films, which are categorized as the Trilogy of Life, it's The Cameron, Canterbury Tales, and Arabian Nights. They're all based on these historic books. Yeah. Uh, I've only actually seen Arabian Nights, but they're much more humoristic and colorful and playful. They're vital and they're human and they're compassionate yeah. and they're... But they also have, I mean, they have a lot of sexuality and some elements of maybe weird or disturbing. uh, Yeah, yeah, like Chaucer has a lot of just fart jokes and it's very crude at times, but it's still, it's funny and it's charming Mm. at the same time. Mm. Also a product of its time. Um, I think the idea is that this was meant as a kind of um, answer to those films. He was kind of turning a new leaf and exploring the very opposite type of themes he was exploring with the trilogy of life. And perhaps if he'd made more of them, it would have made some interesting Maybe. You know, it's an interesting parallel to uh, Nikolai Gogol, Mm. who wrote Dead Souls, which is his most, arguably his most famous work. And it was also part one of a trilogy. And and Dead Souls is sort of quite dark. I mean, it's humorous, but it's pretty debased. And the main character, Chichikov, is is sort of uh, conning... (laughs) Uh, everyone he meets right. to to give up uh, their peasant souls, basically. He's kind of a trickster. Type, yeah, he's uh, definitely a trickster. But he intended to write uh, a volume two in which he sort of uh, goes on a redemption mm. arc, mm. if you will. And then uh, book three as a sort of a culmination of that, like a sort of a, a movement from uh, the debased uh, to something more sacred. Oh, cool. uh, of course, he was... He was um, he got involved uh, heavily into religion and I think his priest... 
he basically became a super religious fanatic and burned his uh, what he's written on the second volume. It never came to fruition. Oh, that's terrible. So, so again, it's sort of a weird twist of fate that didn't allow that to happen. And mm. in this case, it was sort of a really weird twist of fate that didn't allow for the trilogy yeah, to yeah. ever be made. So mm. we can only wonder, you know, yeah, uh-huh. what what could have been. But I don't know. I, I uh, it's an interesting movie to discuss, but I, it's not a very interesting movie to watch. Would you agree? I have mixed feelings. I mean, I like the area of ambiguity it works in. And I like that it makes you feel uneasy and bothered. And the kind of... I mean, making something that's unpleasant isn't difficult. But doing it with an intention and with this kind of force... It's pretty far from one of my favourite movies, I would say. (laughs) But um, there is something that appeals to me. Like, I, I can respect the relentlessness and the intent... Of the sort of unpleasantness, but, I think, but like I yeah. like I said, I I didn't like it. Yeah, to me, there's just something almost like the paintings of Francis Bacon about the faces of these. They're just contorted with so much aggression and anger and perverseness. Yeah, there's something primal there. I mean, that's the thing I remember when I think of the film, and I'd seen it many years before, and that was kind of the image that struck me: just these angry, disgusting faces that are so hateful and selfish. Dumb, uh, yeah, and sort of uh, vile. Yeah, I, I, I and it's th- funny that the president is the dumbest one that looks <laughs> the dumbest. Yeah, I'm sure that was not by accident. No, but no. um, I agree with you totally. It's, it's sort of the thing that sticks with me. It's the faces. It's mm. not the horrific acts. Mm. Well, maybe some of the shit eating, like those images. Yeah. Are well, <laughs> uh, amusingly enough, the shit was made of this quite delicious chocolate. So oh, yeah. probably the actual scene itself was quite fun to film. <laughs> so, so that's uh, sort of a parallel to Two Girls, One Cup, which is this famous uh, sort of hor- yeah. horrific internet video. It kind of... Uh, which also was, I think, chocolate or something. Yeah. Just delicious. Actually, I never like saw that one. Shit eating really isn't appealing to watch. No, it's it's really sickening. <laughs> and actually, when I was watching this movie, I was like, it's pretty nauseous. Yeah. Hadn't eaten anything all day. <laughs> Just had like seven cups of coffee and then the shitting scene. And I was like, dear God, I hope this is over soon. Yeah, but of course it isn't. It no, drags right. on and on. That's about halfway through, I think. Yeah. yeah, but it's definitely a turning point in the sort of yeah. violence of the movie. Yeah, the very end uh, sequence, because uh, throughout the film they have been um, taking they- notes and uh, saying uh, uh, people who have kind of spoken up against them, that the abductees have been spoken up, yeah. have been um, put in a book of bad behavior, and in the very end uh, they're uh, tortured. Uh, they're put in these uh, shackles yeah. and they cut off their tongues and tortured eyes and, and killed in various yeah. ingenious ways. Uh, things happen in fours in this movie, so yeah. you have the you know the split of four like mm. the chapters, and you have the the four libertines, and then towards the end you have the four different libertines, mm. each like taking a place in a sort of a, mm. a lookout post, watching mm. you know, the the torture, mm. you know, commence. It's all very uh, ingenious and mm. horrible. There's something quite playful about the movie as well. I mean, it doesn't dwell into the psychology of these characters. They're quite simplistic and one-dimensional. But the way it presents their little games is very playful. They have this scene where they've gathered all the uh, young abductees and they're sitting on the floor naked with their faces bowed down. And then the four libertines are judging. Yeah, they're judging who has the best ass. Yeah. 
and they're going around saying, oh, this is really nice and I like that. And um, It's important that we don't see the gender so we can judge the ass on its yeah. own merits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's quite a funny scene, actually. Yeah, uh, but then it's like, uh, what, what is the prize uh, yeah. if you win? And uh, they will be immediately killed. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, There's this really dark undertone to this uh, uh, playful yeah. sort of... He, he said it almost like, hmm, now what shall we choose? Well, let's kill the person that has yeah, the best ass. Uh, and and they do. They, 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 I, I thought they put a gun to his head and they oh, yeah. uh, they pull the trigger and it's empty. Oh yeah, that's true. And, and yeah. that's when yeah. it's just like, no, what we really want to do mm. is kill you again and again and again. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you. The characters are very one-dimensional, mm. but at the same time believable. Like, they're not meant to be deep characters that's not their purpose in this movie they have a sort of function hmm. like in a medieval sort of uh, mystery play where you have sort of grace hmm. and humility hmm. and these people are sadism yeah. you know that's their function in this movie but i mean there is some subtlety as well I mean, one of the characters is a um, piano player and she, she's one of the kind of the madams but she doesn't interact so much she just plays the piano to the scenes when they're reading the stories and stuff and a scene towards the end she just she just can't handle it anymore and she just goes nuts and she runs away and she throws herself out of the window. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I would call that nuanced because she doesn't really show any signs of it. Well, the point is I think she's controlled by fear. Like a lot of these characters, it doesn't really show the psychology of them, but I feel like it's talking about, you know, Nazi Germany. How is it possible oh, yeah. for a, such a society to exist? A lot of people are maybe not wanting to participate, but they don't feel like they have a choice and uh, they're driven to extreme either acts or just participating by not arguing against. Or, yeah, like the joy divisions or the death squads. Yeah. Like all, all these seemingly regular people, like... Um, concentration camp guards and stuff uh, being driven to do like incredibly sadistic things mm. but again i think you're doing the legwork there that's something that's not really in the movie you, you're assessing the situation and making that claim but i don't necessarily see that and maybe that's a directorial choice where do you want to put the emphasis there's a lot of subtleties that i think you certainly can pick out from it which he doesn't explicitly say yeah and that also is quite similar to something how Hanukkah often operates. Although he tends to have much more uh, engaging narratives. His films yeah. are much more narrative, but he has a lot of these small, unclear subtleties, like in the white ribbon, that's difficult to pinpoint. It's, that's also about the Second World War, by the way. You kind of do have to do a lot of work to get like the full measure of the film out. But I don't mind that as a technique for narrative. No, I mean, it's definitely intentional. Like, the whole movie is like that. Mm. And it is a choice, clearly. Yeah, I don't know. Like, you have to do a lot of work to get anything useful out of this movie. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Mm. And I'm not saying that all movies should be, like, uh, exciting to watch, obviously. I think it has its function mm. and it's like a, a milestone in its day for <laughs> sort of the the length cinema can go yeah, to. Yeah, extremes. Yeah. What do you think of the ending? <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Uh, we've just watched all these um, brutal tortures of these shackled kids. And where, it goes on for a while. Yeah, too. it goes on for a while. And it's weirdly constructed as well because you have three of these libertines down in the scene and then another one up in a, a room looking down with binoculars. Posts. Yeah, yeah. And it switches them around quite randomly. Almost. So it shows this for a while. And then it focuses on a couple of the young men, the soldiers, who are just talking casually and they play a song on the radio 
and the one guy asks the other guy's girlfriend's name and it kind of ends on that note quite casually and banal mundane yeah very mundane and you know it sort of uh, takes me back to what you said about the banality of like uh, nazi uh, party members and stuff like that i i think throughout the movie like if you choose to read it that way they sort of exhibit that carelessness mm. and humor that you do when you you're not really you won't be held responsible for your actions and you're doing what your superiors are telling you in that situation i think you are able to sort of have a part of your humanity sort of uh, segregated and then you have these horrible uh, things you do and they are not necessarily incompatible if you sort of uh, segregate them in your mind. Mm. So you're able to have a, oh, yeah, I have a girlfriend. Uh, you're able to come home to your wife and children after doing horrible shit in the death camps like uh, Jens Bjørneboe's uh, novel, Air the Cock Crows, which is about a, a Nazi official who, who does horrible shit and then has this you know normal family life. Yeah. The banality of evil, basically. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's kind of like a method, it seems to me, people use psychologically for themselves where they categorize the people that they're treating badly as, let's say, an animal or an insect or fundamentally inferior, like calling them a cockroach, for example. And this allows you to not relate to them as you would an equal so that you can separate their existence and personhood away from your own, making it less relevant basically dehumanizing through language or categories. Yeah, exactly what the Nazis did, the yeah. Jews. If you can dehumanize someone, then the horrible shit you do to them isn't inhumane. Well, well it doesn't affect you because you're not actually treating someone similar to yourself. You're no. treating a lesser... You're so squashing a cockroach. Yeah, it's something without value or with a mundane value that doesn't really matter. Yeah. You see the same mode of thoughts mm. in nearly all genocidal situations. Mm. Like in Cambodia or for the Armenian uh, genocide. Mm. You dehumanize someone and then you, you don't have the moral responsibility mm. anymore mm. because you're not dealing with humans. Mm. I think that's... And that's what this movie does. It shows the dangers of dehumanizing in a way. What kind of acts are permissible as long as you don't really relate to other people as your equal in a sense. Yeah, well, it shows you a bunch of people acting inhumanely at least. <laughs> I mean, it never explicitly says that the kidnappees are inhumane or not human. In fact, I think they do think of them as human. I, mean, I think that sort of increases their lust and, mm. and joy mm. over mm. Yeah, treating Yeah, almost them like so a terrible. sexual perversion. Yeah, so I think it's not quite the same thing. They're sort of exploring the depths of mm. just depravity mm. in a way that regular genocide doesn't. But, I mean, the acts are dehumanizing. Oh, yeah. And they're treating them like meat or objects not like uh, i mean they treat each other quite differently than they treat the victims even though they can do sexual acts towards each other well they're quite respectful towards each other yeah yeah and it's difficult to say whether or not they like each other but they certainly hold each other in regard yeah well, they're well, kind of comrades yeah they're comrades they have a common goal and, mm. you know it's they don't talk personally mm, they, mm. they they have this goal in there it's like they're in war yeah they have this goal, yeah. they have this mission, and they're on this mission, and yeah. they treat each other in a comradely fashion, you know? And there's a sense that they've been planning this for a while. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, you can read all sorts of things into it, like, this was uh, has been brewing for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've they've just this, been waiting to this yeah, situation. Yeah, they've had, like, these plans drawn up, and, uh, like, everything minutely... Uh, because you got to figure it takes quite a bit to pull something like this off without alerting someone to it. Even in fascist uh, northern Italy, people would <laughs> react 
I think, quite horribly to this. I'm not sure if they had any power to do anything about it, though. No, but there's a reason they're secluded, right? There's a reason they kidnapped these people. They can't do it too openly. Although I think people in power are able to do and get away with a lot of horrible things, like uh, our friend Epstein. (laughs) The whole debacle around that Mm. uh, sort of has shown us. As long as you are allowed to break the law and have other rules for yourself than other people. Yeah. It's dangerous. You can do whatever you want and uh, really get deep into what it means to be a horrible, horrible human being. Mm. Yeah. What do you think about the movie as a whole? Like in the end, what what are you left with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, it's clearly very important cinematically. It's kind of like a groundbreaking film that changed the game a lot and has inspired in more ways than one all sorts of filmmakers. Yeah, because I I can say I don't like the movie, but at the same time, you know, I I love Haneke and its influence has sort of... Yeah. You, you can dislike a thing and, and still be... Yeah, we can appreciate, appreciate its, its place. Yeah, the context it exists yeah. in. And definitely that's important. You know, I, I just fucking hate fascism. Yeah. To me, it's just like a demonstration of, you know, Lord of the Flies. If you take away the system of rules that controls people, what happens? For me, it's just a symbol of that. It's anarchy. How, and they talk about it too. Yeah. Fascism is... The true, the, the anarchy of power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not beautiful to see. No, it's no. Just it's just difficult, tedious, it's painful, it's boring, it's ugly, it's nasty, it's unpleasant, uneasy, it's irritating, it's annoying. It's all of these negative things packed into this really beautiful package, really, <laughs> uh, which shows so much of the ambivalence. And it's a very interesting film to talk about. I mean, I feel there's many elements we could potentially delve into yeah. quite heavily without running dry in terms of the themes. I do like it. I don't love it. But certainly I find it very interesting. Yeah, I got to agree with that. It's interesting. I don't like it, but it's very interesting. So yeah. All right, Thomas, do you have any unpleasant uh, recommendations for the good people out in the audience? I do, actually. Uh, <laughs> and this time I want to tell you about a music video. And it's one that uh, holds kind of a special place uh, for me because when I was young, my dad had this VHS tape of collected music videos by Devo and The Residents. I'm not sure if you've seen them, but they have these really amazing and great uh, playful uh, kind of... Some of the earliest music videos, uh, both the Devo and Residence, were quite early in, in the experimenting with this sort of stuff, and they were really funny. But on this same tape, there was another music video, which was by a band kind of adjacent to the Residence. It's, they're called Ronaldo and the Loaf. And they're on the same label, Ralph Records. Uh, there's a British duo of musicians, and they make these kind of absurd, weird, funny and, and strange music. It's not quite the same style as The Residence, but certainly... What is the style? What kind of music oh, is it? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's not easy to pinpoint. Oh. It's kind of similar to The Residence. It sometimes has sort of a poppy kind of a thing. So short songs? Well, not necessarily. No. Well, the story is that my brother, when he was very young... He saw this one music video and it just scared the fucking brains out of him because it's such a fucking intense music video. Uh, and uh, so my dad wiped the tape and I didn't see it when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, I saw it many years later and yeah, I just... Just a music video legend. The song is called Song for the Swinging Larvae. It starts off with just this sweaty close-up of an older bug-eyed man. <laughs> and you just hear this crazy high-pitched mumbling and he's just in the dark. 
and he's kind of turning around in his bed and his face is really anxious. And then it cuts from that. It shows you the title in like a sickly green. And then it cuts from that to a young, like a toddler playing around in a kitchen, kind of like a stylized environment in black and white. Uh, in the background, his mother is wearing red, is doing some sort of stuff. And the kid's just playing around, kind of Tom and Jerry style. You never really see the mother's face, but you see what she's doing. It jumps over to her and you think maybe she's making food, but what she's doing, she's just pouring this red liquid between containers like vases and glasses and all that sort of stuff. Kind of weird. <laughs> well, this yeah. kind of, Mom, what are you doing? Yeah, well, well, this kind of like weird, poppy, avant-garde, playful music is going on. Uh, it's, it's kind of like uneasy... So this boy is uh, wandering around and he's walking on top of the, like the bench in the kitchen and you see kind of like a shadow in the window and uh, the kid is grabbed and dragged out the window. And then there's a new scene in like this dirty basement apartment room, probably the father, who's just this old grubby man with like, he's really ugly, it's the first face we saw in the beginning. He's kind of, he's, he's kidnapped the boy and the boy is all constantly crying they're kind of playing these games and they're sort of heavy-handed and rough and weird. <laughs> it's just so, like, unpleasant. And you get this feeling of the kidnapping and the dirty grubbiness of it. And this, as I said, this weird avant-garde, intense music, high-pitched screeching and going on. And it kind of plays out these situations. Kind of the, at times, the kind of playfully uh, excitement between them. They're doing these games and... At times, it's just like him being like heavy-handed and somewhat abusive, and it's really disgusting. And then it goes back to the kitchen setting. He's kind of rescued, and he's he's there. It shows the mother turning around, and then uh, she has the face of the father, and it's just <laughs> this really unpleasant, intense face. And uh, yeah, I guess I thought about it also because. Similarly to Salo, it's the part of the really unpleasant is just the face and the intensity of it. And uh, yeah. it's very unusual for a music video, uh, <laughs> but uh, definitely interesting to watch. Uh, quite stylistically made. Yeah. Yeah. Ronaldo and the Loaf is also a very funny, weird band that people, you know, must have been forgotten, but very interesting. Yeah. I need to check that out. That sounds. Marvelous. Oh, yeah. It's also uh, supposedly based on the true story about uh, <laughs> kidnapping children and that sort of stuff. God. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, actually, speaking of kidnapping children. Yeah. Um, you got something for us? I, I do. I, I was actually going to do something else. But, uh, you know, watching this movie and hearing you talk about that actually inspired me. Mm. So this is sort of a, a weird recommendation. Uh, I want to recommend an historical character. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I rather recommend that you read up on him uh -huh. because he's just one of the most horrible people like you've ever heard about. I'm talking about a French nobleman named Gilles de Ré. So he was a baron of Pédré, which was an area in France uh, in the Duchy of Brittany. And he lived during the 15th century. Hmm. And uh, during the Hundred Years' War between Britain and France. And uh, he was... One of the wealthiest, I think wealthier than even the king uh, nobleman in France at the time. And he was a great fighter. Hmm. He even uh, got recognition for his valor in combat from the king of France. Uh, sent him a, like a, a letter, a signed letter that I think still exists. Uh, so he was good at killing people. He was very good at killing people. And he fought with uh, Jeanne d'Arc. Okay. On her side? Yeah, he was one of her followers mm. and uh, supposedly even carried uh, her away from battle when she was wounded. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
supposedly, like these sources are pretty vague, but yeah. uh, uh, Jean d'Arc asked for him to be at her side, among other things. So, mm. so this was a very powerful nobleman in 15th century France. The thing is, he had a dark side. <laughs> okay, here we go. You see, uh, once the sort of the Hundred Year War came to uh, an end, or the fighting came to a close, apparently he got pretty bored. Mm. He was used to violence, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, or that is a way of reading it. Anyway, he started kidnapping children from his local sort of parish, his lo local area. Nice. And uh, started killing children. Oof. And so he would, uh, like, a lot of the local poor people would send their children to go begging at the castle mm. because he was extremely wealthy. Mm -hmm. And it was common in those days. Like, one of the reasons we had nobility was it wasn't a one-sided thing. Like, you have your duties towards your liege lord. Mm. But they also have a, a duty to protect... And the common people. Peasants. Yes, yes. That's basically what they are, sort of uh, instated from God as a way of protecting the common people. Mm. Like you could say, in the, in the wake of the chaos following the fall of the uh, Western Roman Empire. So he had these expectations of him to sort of uh, deliver to the people. But instead, he, he sort of he used the opportunity of the sort of uh, almost unimpeachable power that being a, a wealthy nobleman and powerful nobleman in that time meant, and also the sort of the legal status of peasants in those days and poor people were it's almost nothing. Hmm. So he used that to to indulge in his Salo-esque fantasies <laughs> because he didn't just like killing. He really enjoyed... He was true sadist. He was torture. Yeah, he tortured these children. He, like, oh. I won't even describe the shit he did to them. Like, go read up on it if you want to read some really <laughs> horrific shit, oh, shit. And, you, and you didn't think Salo was horrible enough. <laughs> he apparently tried to summon a demon or the devil... Yeah, I don't quite remember which. It's uh, a bit of a time since I read the article on him, and I have heard about him before. Mm. But yeah, he, he tried summoning, like, use dark magic, and he used like oh, children, like. Ch children's hearts and eyes yeah. and stuff, like blood magic. Type. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And all this can, can seem like like hearsay, but mm. there was a lot of sources for this eventually, because the reason for his downfall was not because people cared about peasants. There was uh, internal stride in his family about the wealth. Mm, yeah. Course. So and so they you know they investigated to try to dig up some dirt on him and dig up some dirt they did like it's estimated that he probably killed between I think a conservative estimate is between twenty and a hundred children or something like that <laughs> or possibly even more basically they got his servants who had to clean up the mess after he indulged in the shit too so, yeah, a shit job uh, yeah a true shit job anyway I won't go into all the details mm. but uh, it's just it's just such an unpleasant character and like really. Uh, some of the darkest shit, like even by medieval standards, he was seen as such a horrible person. Mm. And it was a pretty, you know, harsh time. And in France, you know, before the whole um, Versailles and, and gathering all the noblemen, being a noble in France sort of carried with it a sort of responsibility of, of virtue. Yeah. So mm. his sort of disgraceful character is all the more horrific. Mm. So yeah, that's my recommendation if you want some light reading. Nice. We'll put uh, descriptions, links in the notes so you can check out the music video and this guy. This character. <laughs> um, and if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. Uh, we also have a list of our unpleasant movies on Mubi. So if you search on Mubi for unpleasant Movie. movies, our list should show up there. Uh, many good films, interesting films. Yeah, there are a lot of 
good and interesting films to watch. Yeah. Thankfully. And yeah. Then from all of us to all of you, we wish you a good night. And yeah. until next time, have a nice life. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>